Hello, and welcome to Talking Brass Bands, a new series featuring composers and their music for the brass band. I'm James Alexander, and I'll be your host as we interview brass band composers and hopefully gain some insight into their lives and music. Each episode will feature a different composer and one of their compositions in detail. This week, I'm thrilled to have Lucy Pankhurst on the show. Lucy studied at the Royal Northern College of Music as a performer before turning to composition and completing her Masters in 2007 and her PhD this year. Since then, she has received great critical acclaim for her works, including pieces such as Mindscapes and Alchemist's Fire. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you very much. So let's start off with some background. How did you first start composing? So I suppose that my first attempt at composing stretched back to GCSE and A-level. going to be similar for lots of other people. So I didn't think I was particularly good at it, but it was something that I really enjoyed. So because of how much I I enjoyed it, every chance that I got when I went to the RNCM, I took every module or elective to do with composing and arranging. I just thoroughly enjoyed it, really did sort of like getting my teeth into it. Being a tenor horn player as well, at that time there weren't, there weren't very many sort of large-scale, serious pieces of, of music for tenor horn players. So uh, for recitals and things like that, we, we needed more substantial <laughs> works. So I found myself kind of writing things for myself to play or colleagues, quite a lot of baritone pieces and horn yeah. pieces I wrote during that time. But that was mainly either solo pieces or small ensemble or, or with piano, things like that. And it kind of grew from there, really. It was never something I really intended to do. It was just something that I really enjoyed and yeah, kind of happened by accident. <laughs> yeah, I know quite a few people at the Conservatoire here in Birmingham who struggled to find repertoire, but luckily they have music by you and quite a lot of other composers now, so I imagine it must have been a lot worse. There was literally only a handful of, of pieces for us, really, and um, quite obviously, really, but if you performed a piece for an end-of-year recital, you couldn't uh, replicate it on another year. And that there weren't enough pieces for us to do that, really. <laughs> so rather than borrowing pieces from um, French horn repertoire, euphonium repertoire in some cases, and having arrangements and things like that, it's nice that there's so many people writing original music for, for horn now. Yeah, definitely. So what was your first experience of a brass band? Interesting question. So I am not from a brass band in background. I randomly decided one day that I wanted to play the trumpet and it was absolutely my destiny. I had to play the trumpet. Um, however, <laughs> there, were, there weren't any trumpets at school. Um, so I, I went back, I think, for about three months to the music teacher every day. Is there a trumpet available yet? Yeah, is there a trumpet? Is there a trumpet? So eventually, I think I, I got on her nerves that much that she just said, look, all right, there's a tenor horn in the cupboard. Just take that. That'll do you. It's got three valves. It's the same. It's just a bit bigger. Just, just do that for now. And when there's a trumpet available, you can take that. So that's what I did. <laughs> I even made my mum write a note to say that you know, Lucy wants a trumpet as soon as the as, <laughs> as one is available. She ha- must have first refusal. Anyway, when there was a trumpet, I didn't want it. But the region that I'm from, there weren't any brass bands. So I played in a lot of school stuff at the time. Um, I was in the Cheshire Youth Brass Band for a while, um, but most of the stuff that I actually did was wind band. And just the, the last few years before I went to Manchester to uni, I played in the, the Frodsham Silver Band who were a a little fourth section band, and uh, I had a great time there. But I would sort of turn up and play wherever they needed, because I'm a second study trombone as well. 
but if they needed a tuba, I'd turn up and play tuba. If they needed a flugel, I'd do that. <laughs> I wasn't a specialist, really. I'd just sort of turn up and do stuff. When I got to the RNCM, all of a sudden, I was kind of flung in with all of these absolute giants of the brass band world now. So Owen Farr was a few years above me, Dave Thornton, Dave Childs, John Doyle. It was it was amazing. And then I started playing in bands outside of college as well. It was very much a baptism of fire. <laughs> So I think it was it was only when I started at the RNCM really that I that was my first true sort of voyage into the the real brass band. <laughs> yeah. You were composer in residence with Wingate's band from 2008 to 2015. What were some of the pieces you wrote for them? I actually wrote quite a few while I was there. The, the first proper piece that I wrote for them was one called Wicked, which Andy Berryman asked me to write. Gary Curtin was principal youth at the time and he'd heard him messing around with multiphonics and beatboxing and things like that. So he kind of took me aside after rehearsal one day and he was like, right, can you write something like that? <laughs> can, can we use this? So, um, yeah, I wrote a really fun little piece called Wicked that starts with, with Gary doing his thing. Uh, lots of beatboxing, multiphonics, and, yeah, doing lots of <laughs> ridiculously uh, difficult stuff. Um, that was a bit of a showcase for the band, that one. Yeah, it sounds great fun. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was good fun to play. It doesn't get played much now, because the start of it is very re- reliant on uh, these extended techniques, but it was great fun. I also wrote uh, a piece called In Pitch Black in 2010 that was written. And that was to commemorate the 1910 Pretoria pit disaster. So that was the first kind of serious piece. It was a bit of a breakthrough piece for me, really, that in a lot of ways. And, yeah, it was, it was quite important to me, that, that one, because it was um, the first piece that I really kind of dug into a lot of historical research for. Yeah. That's something that I do a lot now. And, that, yeah, so from there I also wrote a piece called uh, Thaufen Raconteurs, which is sort of regional dialect. Thaufen is uh, West Orton, so where Wingates is actually based. Mm. That title literally means the storytellers of West Orton. And that was a big piece, so that was 30 minutes nearly. Wow. And that was to uh, celebrate the 140th anniversary of the band. So it's actually, it's got electroacoustic elements as well. So, so I did... I think it was over 30 interviews uh, with people that have been associated with the band. So we're talking people like Howard Snell, uh, Nicholas Childs, I'm just trying to think, Mark Wilkinson, uh, Anna Hughes-Williams, going right back, Dave Thornton. <laughs> and yes, so there's all kinds of people, Alan Withington. Uh, so I interviewed all of these people to get get an idea and a sense of the history, but also the, the piece ended up being a sort of a, our story in our own words. The text kind of becomes, this narration becomes part of the musical texture, which is quite nice. It's only I've had one performance. Doubt there'll ever be another one, because <laughs> no other band's going to want to play it, are they? <laughs> uh, it literally just tells the story of Wingates from when it was born to, well, to 2013, which is when it was written. And I think I'm right in saying that your piece in Pitch Black won a British Composer Award. Yes, it did. That was in uh, 2011. It was quite interesting because that was actually the first brass band piece to to win a British Composer Award, which is quite nice. And in that category, in the wind band and brass band category, I believe I was the first female recipient as well. So yeah, as I say, that, that was a really important piece for me in a lot of ways. Great, thanks. So your partner, Paul McGee, is also a composer who is responsible for compositions including 
King Kong, Enru, Igor Stravinsky, and Lullaby. Do you often help each other and work together? <clears throat> That's a good question. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard to not help each other, really, I suppose, but we're very supportive of each other. Yeah. A, a question we quite often get asked is... Um, are we competitive at all with each other? Yeah. And we're really not. Um, we work so differently. I mean, the, the the pieces that we actually produce are totally different <laughs> and the the way that we work as individual composers were just totally different. It's amazing to have to have him there because quite often, you know, you get to a certain point in the piece and you just think, it's really not working. What am I doing? You know, banging your head against the wall. So rather than just rip it up and start all over again, it's just nice to have a set of fresh ears just to listen to it and go, oh, actually, this bit's really good. But also, like, yeah, actually, you're right. This bit is rubbish. Get rid of that. <laughs> um, you know, we're quite honest with each other. As for working together, we both worked on a piece called Diversions After Benjamin Britten. Flipping out, what year was that? 2013, I think that was. That was really interesting. Um, Paul Heimarsh approached us both and also Simon Dobson and Gavin Higgins. We were each invited to, to write a movement of this sort of larger piece. So the idea is that it's each movement is framed by one of the fanfares for St Edmundsbury by Britain. And each movement uh, focuses on a certain aspect of Britain's character. So Gavin had the finale and his was subtitled His Skill. Simon was his vitality. Paul's was his sympathy, because he was a, a pacifist. Britain, not Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and mine was his depth, so depth of character and uh, about his, his vocal works. So we each wrote our movements for that piece, but we wrote them completely separately. So we were just given our own individual brief of this is what we want you to sort of illustrate in your piece. And then that was it. The finished result for that was really interesting because I think we've got four very different kind of voices because we all wrote now completely our, our own individual yeah, style. In style yeah. But as a unit all, all together, it, it works really well, even though it was we were completely separate. <laughs> we do collaborate quite often. We, we have a youth ensemble that we run called the Splinters Ensemble. So it's not a brass band, it's actually a wind and percussion that we do sort of contemporary arts projects with, I suppose you okay. could say. So the first thing that we wrote for them, we co we collaborated very much on that. So we came up with the ideas together, go away and write individually, then come together and you know figure it out and edit things between us. That first piece was a sort of a choreographed marching band thing that the kids all learned from memory, doing all of these sort of like you know movements and things like that. It was very cool. So we we do we work together an awful lot in different ways really. <laughs> And um, how does your composing fit into your career as a whole? It's a huge part of it, I would say. I do a lot of work in education, so I do one-to-one -one brass tuition and composition yeah. teaching. Until recently, I was also lecturing at Huddersfield Uni, which, j just because of other workloads and things, um, I had to give that up, unfortunately. I do a lot of work in primary schools, working with classes, doing all-class brass or whole class wind band as well really wow. which is yeah it's a bit of a handful <laughs> that one. so yeah it's it's great fun and I do composition projects in primary schools as well that's sort of based for a term so but with each one of those things there's still a compositional element to it as well because for like the whole class brass projects I write all the stuff they play if there's something in particular that they really like I can go away and write something that's in a similar style and it helps with engagement and things like that as for the sort of larger, purely compositional projects, I thoroughly enjoy those. The more sort of research involved, the better for me. <laughs> it definitely sort of bleeds into 
all the aspects of the work that I do, I would say. Next, let's talk about some of your compositions and contesting. What inspires you to write? That's a multifaceted answer, I would say. On a quite an unpleasant way of looking at it, I suppose, is sometimes it's literally just that you've been commissioned to write something. Yeah. You've got a job to do and you have to write it. Um, I've been quite fortunate in that that doesn't happen very often for me. I'm quite almost always completely engaged with what I'm doing. And I think I mentioned earlier on the subject matter. I like to immerse myself completely in, in what I'm writing about. So there's usually some sort of story or... Uh, narrative within even if the audience can't hear it uh, or isn't aware of it uh, I'm aware of it but I really enjoy researching into things and finding different ways to kind of generate the material that I'm writing so quite often when I'm writing I'll have sort of I can't think of a, a more pleasant way to say this but I'll sort of have moments of just really lucid thinking where a section of a piece will just sort of appear in my brain and it's there and I've very quickly got to write it out before it goes. <laughs> it's like a sort of a colourful cloud just sort of goes poof and there it is and I can hear everything. Wow. It doesn't happen all the time but it, it's usually the pieces that I'm most happy with that it happens in. So yeah, then the motivation there is to write it out quickly before you forget how it goes. But yeah, it's usually um, subject matter or um, equally it could be the performers that you're writing for, you know, can have a huge impact on the outcome of the piece. Yeah. So a piece that I wrote for Dave Thornton called Susurration, which is um, a collection of starlings, you know, the way that they sort of like move together, yeah. like one entity. So I knew that he was doing a lot of work with live electronics um, and extended techniques and things like that. So that, that's what this piece is. It's solo euphonium with electronics. Um, so there's a guitar effect pedal system <laughs> with various things going on, a looping station and multiphonics and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, in, in that respect, he was a huge inspiration for that piece because I, I knew what the, not the limitations exactly, but the lack of limitations <laughs> were for that piece. You were on the judging panel for the European Brass Band Championship Composers Competition in 2019. Was this an enjoyable experience? What was your criteria for adjudicating the compositions? It was enormously enjoyable. It was really good fun. So it was the first time I'd done anything like this before, but yeah, it was really interesting and it was an honour to be asked to do it, really. Um, So it was myself, John Picard and Oliver Waseby that were the adjudication panel on, on the day. So that there was lots of things that we looked for. So, I mean, it was quite obvious which composers were players themselves. It's not always, but it tends to jump out a lot. I think when you know how a brass band works sort of from the inside out, so sitting from a player's perspective, yeah. I think that really does help because it's such a... If, if you don't know much about the brass band and you just decide you're going to write for it, it's, it's such a weird ensemble. If for no other reason than just the all of the transpositions and things, it can quite easily freak people out because yeah. uh, there's nothing else like it. I get questions all the time from other teachers and other composers just saying, Ooh, so are the trombones in treble clef then? <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, the B flat transpose <laughs> instrument. But yeah, it's not like anything else, I suppose, the ensemble. And when you're a brass band player, you settle for you have played in brass bands. I suppose you osmose a lot <laughs> whilst you're playing in the bands so that it's like a second nature to know whether something is likely to work or not. So that was a huge thing. You know, we needed to see which of the pieces were scored well, written well for the instruments in terms of is it idiomatic, is it actually playable? <laughs> There can be all, all sorts of things that people do. So, yeah, just checking how idiomatic, how well-written everything was. So, you know, initially we just had the scores. Um, it was only when it was the final three we actually heard them performed. And that was fantastic to hear them, you know, essentially come to life when we were actually listening to them, which was brilliant. For me, anyway, I would say that the way that the, the piece reflected what it was intended to. So yeah. a lot of the pieces were either written about something or they had a very descriptive title. And in some cases, the title really did what it said on the tin. It was yeah. really well, well done. In other cases, not so much. I don't know if that's, that's answered the question very well. <laughs> <laughs> you also composed solo repertoire, which has been written for the likes of Owen Farr, Dave Thornton, Siobhan Bates, Gary Curtin and Mark Wilkinson. What is different about writing for solo repertoire compared to a full brass band? So it differs from instrument to instrument. If you are writing a piece for brass band with a soloist, it's enormously different from writing a solo instrument with piano. For example, with piano, you don't really have to pay much attention to is the instrument going to get swamped by the piano sound? You know, For brass instruments, that's almost never going to happen <laughs> unless you specifically score it because you want the sound to sort of like dissolve into the piano texture or, or vice versa. When you're writing for a soloist with brass band, yeah, it's all about scoring. You've got to be so careful what you do. So my, my very first sort of significant piece that I wrote was actually the Tenor Horn Concerto for Owen Farr, which was... Flipping heck. I think it was premiered in 2005. Um, it was actually premiered here, <laughs> uh, which is quite nice. If I was to write that piece now, I wouldn't score it in the same way. Because obviously it was written for Owen, who's an absolute powerhouse. <laughs> he can be heard over anything pretty much. And so the, the scoring wasn't really an issue for him. But it's very thick, you know, from the way that I would write now, I, I would say it's quite thick. Because the problem with sax horns, so tenor horns, baritones, euphonium to a lesser extent, and tuba, the nature of the sound, tenor horns and baritones especially, it can easily be swamped and just completely swallowed up by the warmth of the brass band, yeah, really. definitely. So, yeah, it, but it's just getting this balance, so making sure that you know, regardless of who you're writing for, really. That was maybe the mistake with the horn concerto, because I was writing for Owen, and I was like, yeah, Owen can do anything. <laughs> Yeah, it's just making sure that whoever plays this piece, it's going to be heard because they're the soloist. Everyone wants to hear them. And, yeah, just making sure that there, there is this sort of separation and no um, confusion of, of line between the soloist and the band. What's your opinion on contesting? Oh dear. Probably not what people think. I understand its significance for the brass band world in general and I appreciate it. However, it is really not something that I'm a fan of. Just from a playing point of view, I was always the odd one out in the band room whenever it was <laughs> contest season. So 
I'd just be sat there really not enjoying it at all. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, the, the differences in opinion. So ev- every test piece that everybody else hated was usually the one that I loved. <laughs> and, yeah, it was just... I found it really difficult for a lot of reasons. So as a composer, if you imagine what it's like when you're working on a piece for a, a contest... It doesn't matter what the piece is, the closer you get to that contest, it's in your head constantly and, you know, you'll get out of the shower and you're whistling it, you know, <laughs> you're getting yeah. in the car, you realise you're singing the next bit. So when you're doing that in tandem with having to write your own music, it's really hard because, you know, we'd be sat there and you realise that the last five bars you've written is, <laughs> is from the test piece you're working on. So, yeah, it's quite hard. And also, I just, it's not very nice really, but I just, I found it a completely unmusical pursuit, really. Um, it needs to be done to make sure that everybody, you know, you're looking at like 30 people, 28, 30 people, everybody needs to know exactly what they're doing and be a you know, well-oiled machine to make sure that it works on stage absolutely w- without any mistakes. You know, I get it, I understand it, I appreciate it, and there's so much work and so much passion that goes into it. It was just never for me, really. Yeah. I do. I feel awful saying it. I know for most people that I know that play in brass bands, you know, it's what they love about it. And I understand that, I do, I appreciate it. But I think maybe because I sort of came into banding from a, a different angle, but I think it just, from my, my personality as well, it just doesn't really suit me, I suppose. But that's not to say that I think it's a bad thing, it's just not for me. Yeah, so speaking of that, would you ever write a test piece? It's a difficult question. So I haven't written one yet. I have written things that have been used in contests. So, for example, Lucid Perspectives that I wrote with Paul and Andy Baker. That was used as a set test piece in the US, was it last year, I think? But from my point of view, I just wrote a movement of that, like as a little capsule of a piece. So it wasn't deliberately set out to be a test piece as such, from my opinion, anyway. And, yeah, a, a lot of the time people will say, like Pitch Black, for example, when that first came out, Oh, so that that's eleven minutes long. Would you ever consider extending it to t- change it into a test piece? No, no, <laughs> I really wouldn't. It is what it is. It's that thing. So a lot of my pieces, this uh, it's not necessarily intentional, but a lot of my pieces tend to be either ten to twelve minutes or like half an hour. <laughs> so there's like the kind of test piece territory duration. I seem to have avoided somehow. <laughs> Again, I've got no problem with with test pieces existing and with, you know, composers writing writing them. I th- you know, I think that's amazing and it takes a lot of skill to be able to write an effective test piece. Uh, it's a really hard job to do because you're not going to please everyone no. all of the time. Absolutely impossible. I mean, you know, Judith Bingham's Prague is prime example of that. I mean, she got death threats. <laughs> <laughs> like she, she actually did, you know, she got, she got hate mail. And even though that piece wasn't specifically written to be used as a, a contest piece, it does an excellent job of being one because it tests bands, it just tests them maybe in a different way than you know, Journey into Freedom does. Yeah. But it's a difficult job to write a test piece, I would say. And I think just because of my sort of relationship from a playing point of view, it's not something that I'm I'm drawn to, I would say. I wouldn't like to say that I would never write one because I think that's a bit sort of uh, blinkered, a bit narrow-minded, but um, it's definitely not something I'm, I'm seeking out to do. Okay. Are you working on any new music for the brass band at the moment or in the near future? I've almost always got some sort of brass band <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've just, just finished one piece that's premiered later in the year and I'm in the middle of another sort of smaller project as well at the moment. I can't say too much about that just yet because of... Uh, 
because of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I am I'm still writing. It's very, something that's very close to my heart and uh, something I enjoy writing for. And as long as I've still got things to, to say, I think I'll always be writing for band, really. What other instrumentation have you written for? I've written for symphony orchestra, string orchestra. I've written quite quite a few choral pieces. So I've got a piece that's being premiered at the end of next month, uh, which is based on an Anne Bronte poem. What else have I done? I'm just trying to think. I wrote a piece for brass band and steam engine once. <laughs> really? <laughs> and diesel train. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was quite fun. How did that work? <laughs> So there was, oh, let me think. I think there was three bands. So there was the main band in the middle, and then there was additional forces that kind of like study the side of the band. Yeah. It was a while ago, this, maybe 2006-ish, something like that. And behind the band in the depot, we had a modern diesel train and a steam engine. So, yeah, at various points in the piece that they sort of like sounded their their train horns. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is great fun until uh, they sort of they set the steam engine going all the steam was going everywhere it was brilliant but everyone's music started going all over the place <laughs> and things so yeah that was great fun yeah, um, sounds it <laughs> yeah it's really good have you got any advice for aspiring composers to be true to yourself i suppose so i mean i i never really set out to be a composer it was all completely accidental it's just like i never set out to be a tenor horn player that was accidental as well <laughs> so <laughs> but i'm not i'm not saying that the same's going to work for everyone but just if something re- you're passionate about it and it really interests you then just go with it quite a few people recently that have sort of spoken to me about projects that they want to do and you know having trouble looking for funding and things like that and it's it's hard it's really difficult if it's something that you believe in and something that you really want to make happen, then just keep going for it. And I would say to, to just learn as much as you can about everything. Take every opportunity that you possibly can. Eventually, you know, you never know where, where the smallest of things can lead. So, yeah, every opportunity that you get, I would just say go for it. Immerse yourself and enjoy it as much as you can. Yeah, some really great advice there. I think it's about time we heard one of your compositions, Lucy. This is Where She Sings Freely, which is based on an award-winning poem by 13-year-old Clara Price, who is also the narrator in this recording, alongside the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama Brass Band, conducted by Dr Robert Childs. many times that she believed it. A bird that raised her young as she was raised, like the generations before her, decade by decade, century by century, illustrated by the blue books that could only be changed on the light side of the moon. 
roles decided by the affluent, the workers, those that oppressed the affliction that scintillated on the pupils of her eyes, windows through the marriage bars, a push of a boundary, one domino in a line of others. To resist was one way, but nature's mirror casts the mind to dusty dreams, those reveries that led souls to ignite. is one, to dive is another. When a bird grows to a dragon, she now births lullabies of flame. A flock transfigures to an army, an army without contention or conviction. blown out in a spiral of smoke. The side never weakens. The wails of stigma and manipulation, now of justice. of the moon. The bird can sing freely, can teach not only her young, can work for her needs, can stand for the right. On the light side of the moon, she can think, take flight, Hover, dive, and soar. What a beautiful piece, such a powerful poem accompanied with equally powerful and evocative music. How did you begin to write this piece? To begin with, uh, so Robert Childs contacted me with this idea. He said he had this poem and asked if I thought I would be able to set it to music somehow. So, of course, I said yes, because, uh, you know, it's a stunning poem. It really is lovely. The poem is just the absolute inspiration for everything. So I set out to compose a short work, so I think it's about four and a half minutes, that would, I wanted it to complement the gravity of the text, but I also wanted to make sure that there was this balance. I wanted to demonstrate this coexistence between the music and the voice, so the two are connected rather than one just accompanying the other. 
it's a sort of symbiotic performance relationship, I suppose. It ensures that although you could perform either of them in isolation, the collaboration between the, the narrated voice and the band offers something new, so it brings life to the words and meaning to the musical gestures. I used the text to figure out what the music was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the opening line is, to think you can fly is one, to take flight is another. So to illustrate this idea of to, to think you can do something, to think you can fly, there's this ascending jump of a seventh and it keeps happening again and again all over the place and it starts off with the flugel solo. Um, and then when the narration actually says uh, to take flight we move from that seventh, it actually goes up to the octave. So it's like it moves from you think you can do something, it's like you can't quite hit that octave, to actually do it is another. And then we move, actually soars up to the octave yeah. then. And there's lots of other things like that. So there's a few little bits like, so the text talks about in the little song she had to sing and decade by decade, century by century. Behind what the narration is doing, you can hopefully hear in the cornets the rhythm of those words and a sort of pitch contour of what's going on. So in the little song she had to sing, the, the cornets actually have that almost at the same time going on. Um, in the little song she had to sing. So we have that little phrase that sort of keeps coming back. There's, there's lots of imitation, a word painting, I suppose you could say, so between yeah. what the, what's happening in the text and what's going on in the, the music. It was really quite important to make sure that there's a, an adequate balance between what was going on with the, the music and what was going on with Clara. What I wanted to try and avoid was to have just like a pause, you know, like a vamp barb. So I was very careful how I timed where things happened so it would hopefully almost like be a conversation between the two things, this interplay. As I say, I didn't want it to just be an accompaniment or just be a narration. I wanted this conversation between the two. No, they are very interwoven and you, you kind of need both to get the full picture. You can't just yeah. have one mm. without the other. I'm glad you said that. That was the intention. <laughs> <laughs> you use extended techniques in this piece, such as half-valve glissandi and tremolos. Why did you decide to use these? In this piece specifically, it's to illustrate, completely to illustrate what's going on. I should say that the text itself um, illustrates the perception and determination of women in Wales across the last few centuries. So it has um, historical context in it and obviously feminist overtones, I'm sure you can tell. In terms of the extended technique, so when the narration talks about to hover, there's a lot of sort of tremolo sort of sounds, so like a really quick reiteration of a, of a note on alternative fingering, basically. And that's supposed to sound like this, you know, sort of shimmering effect, like something hovering in midair. Yeah. Um, and then when the text goes on to talk about to dive, so from that hovering position to then suddenly dive, and there we've got like these half-valve glissando fall figures. So in, in my mind to begin with, I was thinking about like a bird in flight hovering in the air and then all of a sudden bringing its wings really close to its body and pew, diving down. Yeah. So that's what these sort of falls initially were supposed to be. And the more I thought about it and the sound that it actually creates, it's quite strained and it's almost like someone trying to speak and they can't quite do it. It doesn't sound human, you know, it's yeah. it's a strange sound. So that, that was intentional as as well, the more I thought about it. It's it's this idea, you know, struggling to try and make your voice heard. All those little moments of extended techniques, they have significance with the text. We have um, a cornet solo, which sort of moves around and swoops from high to low 
Um, so that's, again, it's supposed to give this idea of something in flight and, you know, the, the freedom of it. Um, but we hear that again right at the end. Um, so as the narration says, on the light side of the moon, she can think, take flight, hover, dive and soar. So at that point, you know, she's literally saying, uh, on, on the light side of the moon, so looking forwards from where we are now, we can do whatever we want. We have the power to to actually make things happen and be heard. And the last cornet solo that actually accompanies that brings together all of the elements from all of the, the effects that we've heard. So it's got this sort of swooping melody going up and down. It has tremolo and the half valve in it as well. So that, that's what it's doing. You know, it's supposed to illustrate what she's saying there as yeah. well. It's like, we've done all of these things. We can do anything. Do you have any advice for bands playing this piece? The two pieces of advice I would give would be to make sure that you have adequate rehearsal with the narrator because there is ample time for each narration to happen. It's quite easy for them to rush or to take a little bit too much time. Uh, it was timed specifically so that it should work and everything should line up quite well. But obviously it does require um, adequate rehearsal just to double check everything fits <laughs> because each narration is just cued by the conductor by a, a signal just to, to let them know that we're at the next point in the score so I split the text up into 10 fragments so there's 10 signals from the conductor to the narrator so hopefully it's as um, user friendly as possible and the other thing uh, I would say is whenever the narrator isn't performing especially uh, in the crescendo sort of three quarters of the way through after we actually hear the, the Welsh national anthem sort of in the band as the narration talks about, you know, the situation in Wales. And it's like there's been a, a sustained pedal pressed. So each note in the melody is sustained. And yeah. So after that point there, there should be a huge crescendo just for a few bars where the band can really let rip. So whenever there's the opportunity, I would say to, you know, just go for it. Great. Um, where can people find out more about your music? Um, I do have a website. I don't update it anywhere near as, as often as I should do, but I, I will certainly try to. So, yeah, I do have a website, which is just www.lucypancase.com. There's lots of info on there. I'm also on Twitter. If there's something going on, a performance or a project I'm working on, we'll quite often tweet about it. You can get in touch with me directly through the website as well. You can hear lots of Lucy's music on her SoundCloud as well, which I think is linked on your yes, website. Yes, so there's links. So yeah, I have a SoundCloud page. I also have, a, <laughs> not much on it, but I have a YouTube channel. I think I've got three things on there. It's very exciting. Yeah, so all the links to, to those are on the website as well. Thanks. So to end the episode, I'm going to ask some quick fire questions. So, cats or dogs? <gasps> dogs. Favourite test piece? Ooh, I'm not allowed to say a Paul McGee one, am I? Because <laughs> that's a bit biased. Okay, pageantry. Yeah. Tenor horn plays. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin? Probably Pink Floyd. Comedy or horror? It very much depends on which way my brain is facing that day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, finally, entertainment contest or test piece contest? Uh, entertainment, I would say, from a, yeah. a playing perspective and a composing one, Yeah, for me personally. And on that note, we've come to the end of this episode. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Lucy for being here and sharing your music with us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Podcast produced by me, James Alexander, and logo designed by Ben Chilton. Theme music composed by James Alexander, recorded and edited by Joe Ockford, 
and with myself and Ethan Hall on cornet, Yuhan Yang on euphonium, Charlie Denny on trombone, and Howard Williams on E-flat bass. Thanks for listening. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.